0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at WestminsterForum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Chris Matthews is a writer, political commentator, and host of the nightly news show, Hardball with Chris Matthews, and the weekly panel discussion, The Chris Matthews Show. In his new book, Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero, Mr. Matthews writes that his own interest in politics began in 1956 at the tender age of 10 as he listened by radio to the balloting at the Democratic National Convention for the Vice Presidential Candidate. Estes Kefauver won, and then he watched on TV the charismatic but losing candidate, John Kennedy, address the convention. From that point on, he said, politics increasingly became an obsession. He graduated from the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, and then served in Peace Corps in Africa. After returning home, he began his professional work in politics. He served in the offices of four congressmen, and then went on to work with President Jimmy Carter as a speechwriter. Following his tour in the White House, he served as a top aide to Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill. In the late 1980s, he became a full-time journalist, working for the San Francisco Examiner and the San Francisco Chronicle. In 1994, he began his career on television and he's been on the air every weekday since then. In his presentation today, he will focus on the subject of his new book, Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero. He offers a fresh look at the man who first caught his attention in 1956 and inspired him to wonder for more than 50 years, what was this man really like? Today, he'll share with us what he's learned. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Chris Matthews.
1: Thank you, you. 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 Tim, and I have never been in a more beautiful spot. Thank you so much for having me here to Minneapolis. Uh, You're laughing, but it's true, sir. It really is the most astoundingly beautiful room I've ever been in. I'm not always sarcastic. (laughs) Sometimes I actually speak straight. And and here I am in front of a group of straight Midwesterners who want to hear it from the straight from the heart. I want to talk uh, only for a few minutes, about 25 minutes, which I'm allowed about the book, but I want to talk about today. And I think the issue of ethics and morality are important, and uh, none of us are perfect. And uh, I thought I'd talk about perhaps uh, the, um, the talents, the moral talents, I guess we might say, of people we are looking for to be our next president or to remain as president. What are we looking for? And um, I think we naturally go to the person who's a good speaker. We naturally go to change if we don't like the way things are going on. Those are the impulses generally. When they get into a debate, we go to the best talker, the best arguer. And the question is, are those really the ways to pick a president? You know, you don't like the ins, so you bring in the outs, whoever they are. Like a baseball manager, you don't like the pitcher, he can't get them out, so you bring in the guy from the bullpen, but you don't actually say, how's that guy thrown in the bullpen? You always look and see how the guy on the mound is doing. That's human nature, but maybe that's not enough sometimes. You also go looking for the guy who's the most glib. Well, by that definition, most of us on MSNBC should be the next president of the United States. (laughs) And I do not make that claim. Perhaps Joe Scarborough might be an exception. (laughs) Again, I speak from the heart. So do we judge by conditions or by uh, eloquence, or do we judge by deeper qualities? And I guess that's what I want to talk about for a few moments, because I have a a candidate for you who we've lost, but I think exemplified many of those qualities. Uh, uh, A couple years ago, 60 Minutes and... uh, And Vanity Fair, the magazine, conducted a national poll. I think they do it every couple of years. In this case, they asked people, who should be on Mount Rushmore, who's not there now? And I love that question, because it wasn't about who was the greatest president, because then you add up the bills they passed and the wars they won and all that kind of, sort of somewhat unrelated to each other, sort of questioning. But you ask, who was a hero? And the American people chose John F. Kennedy over Roosevelt, over Reagan, They chose him rather dramatically. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. What's that about? Hero. You want a hero as your president. Now that's an interesting idea, a hero. You know, in in American culture, very much, I think, perhaps unknowingly derived from our native culture here, American Indian culture, we go for someone who has exhibited a rite of passage, something in youth that showed physical courage, almost like one of the tribes of North America where you made the young man go through some incredible, almost torture to achieve his manhood. And all of our literature is basically, American literature is always based on the idea of a rite of passage, R-I-T-E, a rite of passage, something that displays early on who you are, whether you have the courage. And I know all of our tradition going up, we all grew up, those of us who grew up in the 1950s, it was Teddy, it was uh, Davy Crockett, of course, killed himself a bar when he was only three. You know, I I always thought that would be a pretty good standard if you wanted a president. You know, if you'd done that, I wanna know more about this guy. He killed a bear at 3. Uh, the idea, I think, of Winston Churchill, the probably the greatest foreign leader for most Americans who escaped from the Boers, or Ernest Hemingway, who was driving an ambulance when he was badly hurt in World War I, uh, basically serving in the, uh, as an officer in the Italian Army before he we went into war World War I. And, of course, John F. Kennedy in PT-109. The story of PT-109 is heroic. It's not cinematic. It's factual the man's boat he was skipper of it a pt boat was rammed one night at two o'clock in the morning with no light no moon no stars no radar in fact his boat was only operating on one engine of the three engines because they didn't want to create the phosphorescence in the water because they were in japanese waters and if the japanese got you by the air you'd be blown up If they got you on land you'd be tortured at length the japanese anybody who's read unbroken knows about that horrific story what the japanese did to prisoners And here's the guy at 2 o'clock in the morning, instinctively, when his boat gets cut in half, 11 feet from me, that ship goes past him, cutting through his boat, without even apparently knowing he was doing it. The captain of the ship didn't know he'd done this. Jack dived into the water, swam through the gasoline-burning water, and found one of the other, uh, his 42-year-old engineer, Pappy McMahon, and carried him back to the part of the boat that was still floating. Went off and got another fellow named Harris. Both of these guys were saying, go on, Skipper, I can't make it. That part was out of the movies. I couldn't believe these scenes of these guys saying, I can't make it, Skipper, just go on. And in both cases, he talked them into saving their own lives. And he got them to the boat. And the next day, they voted on what to do. Basically, he was asking them to offer their opinion. He was the Skipper. And in fact, he said to one of the men, you know, he said to them all, you don't have much to live for. You guys have a lot to live for. You have families at home, and kids. And, and they, one of the guys who was with him said, I can't believe a Kennedy saying I have nothing to live for. His father is one of the four richest men in the world. And at the time, he just basically decided, well, we're gonna save this crew. And uh, made the decision, they're gonna go for an island that was four miles away, they're gonna swim for it. Now what he discovered was that four of his crewmen couldn't swim, five could. So he made sure that the four guys who could swim were on the same plank, they found a plank in the water. And he said, you guys are gonna stick together. He put the EO in charge, the executive order in charge, and made sure that the swimmers stuck with the non-swimmers. And somebody said, we can't make it. He said, it will be done, it can be done. We're gonna make that four miles. Because they went to a very small island, and an island looked like apparently like one of those islands in the New Yorker magazine. You know, with a couple palm trees, and you know, a few feet wide. And, but they figured, they figured there'd be less chance of a Japanese uh, troop uh, landing there that would have cost these guys their miserable ends, in fact, they would have all died by torture. And so he said, he said, I'll take care of McMahon. At which point he pulled out his knife and cut the strap of McMahon's life jacket and put it in his teeth, and threw McMahon, a 42-year-old man, badly burned at the time, over his back and swam for four hours. That's what he did. And when he got to the island, he vomited because he had so much salt water. This guy didn't know how bad Jack's back, his bad. his back had been terrible since youth. Since youth, He had snuck into the Navy with his father's help and with the help of uh, the senator from Massachusetts, David I. Walsh, who was chairman of the Navy Committee. He should have never been in the Navy. His back was terrible to begin with. After the uh, ramming by the Japanese destroyer, it was, he said this felt like death. And still, he managed to carry that guy for four hours in the water with a breaststroke. And then that night, he went out, he grabbed the 38 revolver and a flashlight went heading out into, this, into the Ferguson Channel that night, Ferguson Passage rather, and went out there and swam way out into the ocean again and tried to flag down another boat coming by and he shredded water until he fell asleep, basically, and drifted to an island and he, he woke up on a uh, sandbar and swam back to the island. Then he took a screw the next day to another island, same with Pappy McMenna's back again, The guy's holding onto the plank again. And then he swam to a third island where he finally found water and brought it back for them. The Japanese had left some water. This is an amazing story. Now, word of that kind of behavior gets around? It's called duty. It's meeting your commitment as a commander. And it is leadership. And it is an example of what true leadership is. A leader is someone, if you look behind him, there are people following. That's what a leader is. Not somebody who gives good speeches, but someone who leads other men or women into combat. And they naturally follow because they trust the leader. And that's what picking a president I think is about because it's about courage. And let me ask you, it's also about wisdom and knowing how to get your men get back home afterwards. That, that poll about Mount Rushmore told a lot. I think we were picking a guy who had done his rite of passage. Somebody had proven his courage in youth because that's part of the arc of the American hero. And it fits all customers. It's what we always look for. Now to the question of leadership, not just courage. I wanna get back to courage later in the big picture. That experience as hero of PT-109 for which he won a couple of medals and spent a year more in a hospital afterwards because his back was never, ever cured again. By the way, another story of Jack Kennedy was that he was a classic World War II guy. And like many people here have grown up with World War II guys, some of you here, you never complain, you never explain. You don't tell war stories and you don't complain about having lost a good bit of your life and lost a lot of friends and maybe been injured. World War II guys don't complain. My dad never complained. My uncle was in a tank going into Auschwitz and fighting all across Germany, killing Germans, and he never complained. My uncle was in Australia, he never complained. My father was an intelligence, never complained. One were two guys don't complain. They're unlike a lot of us from the 60s who whine. <laughs> they don't complain, and they don't know what it is. It's unmanly, if you will, to complain. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to take it. And I think that comes from growing up under the Great Depression and having seen worse. And being so thrilled, by the way, to come home to an America where there's a G.I. bill and and, and a G.I. housing waiting for you and a chance to make it into the middle class. Thank God for the Democrats on that one, because they did it. (laughs) The we. I think you can judge a president from the power of we and not from the power of he or she someday. And that is, do they lead us or do we talk about them? If you talk about them all the time, they're not really leading us. You're looking at them and and judging them, as a student almost, like how are they doing? How's he doing? How's she doing? That's not a leader. A leader is when you follow the person. Kennedy's great strength was that it was a we from the beginning. When he won, it wasn't just the Catholics getting to have the first president, breaking sort of the Episcopalian, and generally Episcopalian hold on the presidency, sometimes with Eisenhower, for example, Presbyterian, but generally pretty much monopolistic, uh, mainstream uh, Christian church control of the White House. And all of a sudden the the door was open to all religions and and all of a sudden Kennedy made a big impact in that that regard in getting elected. And he also made everybody World War II, the junior officers and the enlisted men and women from World War II, felt that they had taken charge too. They'd come back from the front and it was their turn to lead. It was a great sense of doors opening in 1961 and the country feeling part of a we. And most importantly at all, he asked the American people to do something. It's what most politicians don't get. Thank God, but they don't get it. You don't win the American people over by giving them stuff. The American people cannot be bribed, but they can be led. And they can be led by being challenged. The American people respond to challenges. When you ask us to do something, we like it. We don't like being discarded. We like being used. We like being asked to do things. Buy war bonds. Do your fair share. Join the Peace Corps. Join the Special Forces. Root for a moonshot to get to the moon. Get involved. Even if it's a 50 mile hike, do something, get into this thing here. And people really like that because everybody likes to be included and everybody hates being discarded or excluded. And so many presidents don't get that. They think if I pass this bill, they're gonna like me. If I do this thing, they're gonna like me. No, asking to participate in a national effort. There was a great phrase in World War II and I think Kennedy remembered it subliminally, war effort, war effort. We've completely forgotten the meaning of that phrase. It's when everybody does something. You may not all be on the front line. You may not all be on fighter pilots or bomber pilots or infantry, but you can all do something whether it. it's work at a, at a factory or you can collect pay, newspapers or you can collect metal, like a rubber, but everybody did this stuff. Or you can, work at, you, you can help the troops at home by working at the USOs or canteens. Everybody did it, they bought war bonds. The Hollywood stars sold war bonds. Bogart and Bacall, everybody was doing it. It's how America won wars. Maybe we've stopped winning wars because we don't do that anymore. Maybe because we fight wars we shouldn't fight because we're not willing to do that. And maybe that should be the standard. If we're not willing to all get involved in a war, let's not have it. That would be my view. (laughs) Kennedy had guts, and I think the hardest thing for a president to do besides leading us is to actually take positions which aren't popular. And they may sound contradictory, but no, people do tend to like people that make stands. They may say, I wouldn't have done that, but I'm glad he did. That's how people choose leaders, because it's the one who takes responsibility. You know when something goes wrong, and somebody says, blame me, that's how you know the leader is. That's how you find out. Something went wrong, and your kid says, I did it. Then you know the kid's growing up. Right? It's pretty simple, and it's pretty human. And I look at what happened to the Bay of Pigs. Everybody said the Bay of Pigs was a disaster, and it sure was. Kennedy made some huge mistakes. They sent 1,500 Cuban exiles, uh, a lot of middle class guys, and guys actually, back to try to take back their country. All that Kennedy had to ask, and he never asked, was how many Cuban regular troops will be there to meet them the first day? That's all he had to ask. The rest was irrelevant. What kind of an army are they gonna face? Wouldn't you all ask that? I mean, maybe you wouldn't, but if you think about it, yeah, who are they gonna face? The answer was 25,000. So that wouldn't have been a good idea, would it? To send 1,500 guys into a deserted beach somewhere to face 25,000. He never asked basic questions like that. The CIA tried to trick him into it. They thought if he could get those people on the beach, Kennedy would have to say, okay, let's bring in the Marines. Let's back them up. They lied to the exiles, said that we would back them up if they got in trouble. They never told Kennedy that. But then when he was stuck, and they said, oh, by the way, they're stuck on the beach. They said, now it's time to go in. And he said, no. And that was his most courageous decision as president to say, no, I know you've tricked me, guys. By the way, you're all gonna have to resign. <laughs> um, but you tricked me, and Lem Nintzer, the big shot with all the, the, the medals, the head of the, uh, C, uh, the uh, Joint Chiefs, they all let him do it. They all said to have a good time. They didn't give any warning on what to face. He should have asked the questions, but they didn't help him any. And so afterwards, he had learned his lesson. And when he found out there were 90 Cuban missile warheads in Cuba facing us, offensive weapons, including intermediate range we- weapons that could have hit New York, he said, I'm not gonna do what they want me to do now, which is to attack, because that's what Curtis LeMay wanted them to do, go in and hit them with everything we had, and, and, and then invade. And Kennedy said, God, they got a lot of Russians on that island. They thought 10,000 turned out 43,000. We would have had to kill a lot of Russians. And he said to LeMay, what do you think Khrushchev will do if we start killing Russians? And LeMay said, nothing. Thank God we have a constitution that puts the power of war in the hands of our elected president. Every time I hear one of these characters running for president today and say, I'm going to listen to the generals on the ground. (laughs) I say, well, why do we need a commander in chief? Just let them sort of telegraph us what to do. Since we're just the people, tell us what to do, general. That's called a military coup. And yet these guys dodge the bullet and say, oh, we'll just let the generals decide everything. Well, the reason we have a constitution and the genius of the American Constitution, which is better than all the other constitutions in Latin America for sure, and France has had five republics. We've had one. We haven't missed an election since 1788. We have not missed an election because we were professional about our democracy, thank God. And we put the top person in the military, the commander-in-chief, as our elected president. And that guy or woman someday calls the shots, literally. And John Kennedy said, we are not gonna invade. In fact, he cut a deal with Khrushchev that got us through this thing. And it turns out that Khrushchev's plan, which he wrote in his memoirs, was as follows. If I'd been caught with those missiles and I had a few left and we knew we couldn't get them all, I was going to hit New York with whatever weapons were left. Now, I wouldn't kill everybody in New York, but I'd kill a lot of people and I'd teach America what it's like to fight a war on its own territory. This is what Khrushchev was prepared to do. Had Curtis LeMay and Shoup and McGeorge Bundy and Doug Dillon and Dean and that whole crowd of so-called experts got in their way, we would have leveled this planet. That's what would have happened, because inevitably, if they'd struck us with nuclear weapons, we would have struck back. If they'd moved on Berlin, which Khrushchev promised to do, we would have had to go to first use, and that's what he promised to do if we went to Cuba. Thank God we had a smart president with the courage to say no to the big shots, to say no to the so-called experts. So when you go to vote, I think you have to think about, boy, this is one high standard, by the way, we set for our president. We expect that person to be smart enough to outthink the experts and think of things they don't think of in the greater national interest and in human interest. Kennedy said to May, your plan is a first strike. Hit all the Soviet Union and all its collected uh, captive nations, kill the people. He said, "You you call ourselves civilized? It's not a military question. These aren't just political questions, they're human questions that the human being who's our president, this one person, has to answer as president of the United States. That is the glaringly powerful, incredibly high standard we set for our president of the United States. And by the way, we still have the nuclear weapons. They're still there. And we got Putin on the other side, and he's still there. And we got Ahmadinejad and the clerics who are rising up and creating a threat there in terms of nuclear weapons probably in the next few years. The next president has to make those calculated decisions. So it seems to me as we go to pick a next president, we watch these debates, which are fairly entertaining, and I want to thank you all for Michelle Bachman. Uh, for you've done your bit. Minnesota has contributed its part to the national debate. But you offset them with Keith Allison, Keith not and Keith Allison, you offset them. And so I wanna just finish up with Kennedy. What you can argue about his private life and I've, I've got mentions of that in there too when he was not a good husband in many ways and I, he was a good pal, ironically, a good friend to his old pals but not, boy, I think about Jackie and her love for this guy. She, from what I've been able to figure from Jackie Kennedy, you know, for, it's not that these are the most important things in the world, the fact that she was beautiful and that she was lovely and well-educated and cultivated and was a great spouse in terms of public exposure. We know all that. But she really was a love, in love woman with this guy. And she loved him even despite his behavior personally and his betrayals. She loved him almost in a way that sounds objective. She saw past the fact he was her husband to this guy. And she understood this guy. And she said a lot of his behavior had to do with the fact that he was a kid. He was lonely all the time as a kid. He was always sick as a kid. And here's where I guess the Freud comes in. His mother never loved him. His mother never loved him. She liked being the mayor's daughter. She loved being the ambassador's wife. She never loved Jack. Trying to understand this kind of behavior of his, something was missing with this guy that he went looking for. And he, the fact that this beautiful woman, I, I remember this picture I dug up of her, this young woman. Remember, she was Jack's age when he first laid eyes on her when he died. There was a big age difference of 12 years there. He first met her when she was 24, uh, when he was 34. Ten years later, she was 34. She was such a young woman as First Lady. It's hard to imagine being a 34-year-old young First Lady. She goes race, I see this picture of her. It's almost like Keats, Ode to a Grecian Urn. She's racing after the gurney, this woman. It's an amazing scene they came across down at Parkland Hospital. Her description of her husband was, The inner Jack, she remembered not the dashing, good-looking, handsome guy with the tan and the great hair and all that stuff and the charm, but the inner Jack, the young kid who grew up loving heroes like Arthur and Churchill and reading about heroes all his life and wanting to be among them. She, and a lonely kind of guy to the end, a guy, Jack Kennedy would always uh, pray at night. I didn't believe this when I first heard it. He would get down on his knees every night before he went to bed and pray. I th- first heard this from Dave Powers and I, my editor, she said be careful, that just right," he said. But then I found it out from Jackie and she sort of was condescending about it because she wasn't very religious and she said it was kind of superstitious but I'm not kind of Catholic too. I, I understand what you call superstition, I call devotion. I have a, I have a different word for it. Uh, and by the way, none of us are perfect, even if we are devotional, as we know. There's a difference between behavior and devotion, but devotion is a big starting point for a lot of us. It it keeps you a lot more in a straight and narrow, these devotions. And he would go, and I don't know if you're all familiar, some of you are growing Catholic, but confession. He used to go to confession regularly. He didn't have to do that. Right to the end. In fact, he'd have secret service agents sort of hang out and get in line with their accents so he could sneak in among them. Because one time the priest said, Good evening, Mr. President. A little too much information there for him. Uh, but he would do things like pray and uh, and uh, go to confession. He didn't have never miss mass in his entire life. And no, not everybody, even in the navy and in high school, he went to a Protestant prep school. He would go all the time into the village. He'd go to another island in the navy. I'm just saying this to say, not to defend his behavior, except to say it's complicated, like our, all our lives are. I was speaking to a bishop of my church recently, a very high-ranking bishop. I was describing the comp- conflict between this guy's behavior with his marriage and his devotion to his church. He looked at me like, "What else is new?" Like, people are people, and they're complicated. Anyway, the Jackie end of this story is so romantic and so uneven. Life, as Jack Kennedy said, is unfair, but love's unfair, we know that. There's always one person giving more than the other person. And as my editor once said to me years ago, Michelle Slung, she said, you're gonna keep falling in love all your life, it might as well be with the same person. Which I always (laughs) think that's a fairly useful guide to life. It's also, keeps things organized a lot better too. Anyway, this book, is I believe this. I know I'm outselling this book, and I'll sell it to you right now. Please come afterwards and buy a book, (laughs) and I do it every night on my show because I think of all the things I've been able to do in public life, this has been a chance to bring back something really good, a story we need. The conservatives have Reagan, and fair enough. I don't dump on Reagan. Fair enough. I'm a big fan of Nancy Reagan. She's a friend of mine. I think Reagan did some good things. He saw in Gorbachev an end, and unlike a lot of other dim politicians, he said, this is different. Here's a chance to end this thing. And for that, he deserves his place in history. He also moved to the center. And the great thing about our political process, when it's working, it takes the people from the polls and brings them to the center. They go to Washington for a reason, to one place, to meet each other. It's called Congress. They go together. They get together so that they might hear on the other side a glimmer of common thought and say, there we can agree. That's why they go. They don't mail it in or email it in. They go to meet. The Tea Party people, I've got one problem with them. They don't have any ears. They don't hear anybody else. They go there with one purpose, to to say no. And I don't think that, the reason my boss, Tip O'Neill, got along with Ronald Reagan, majestically so, I would argue, is because he knew Reagan won the 80 election and deserved to have his vote. He didn't obstruct, he didn't play games. And Reagan knew he lost the 82 election, and he knew it was time to fix social security the democratic way. The best politicians bow to how the voters voted in the last election to the extent they have to, so that they can win the next election. You must respect the vote. You can't keep with your ideology and ignore the American people. If they make a big decision and you get a mandate from them, listen to it and honor it. You may want to change it a bit, but don't ignore it. And the Democrats have, I think, listened to the Tea Party people to some extent. The problem is that there hasn't been a willingness on the other side, and this is not a partisan assessment, this is a hard fact, that the Tea Party people come into Congress with the demand on. People behind them who sent them, do not deal. Deal is bad. I don't know where you get an idea that compromise is bad. Every time you go to the store, you buy something. That's a deal. Whether it's a car or it's an M&M's package, you make a deal. The guy wants 59 cents. Okay, here. That's a deal. All right? If you don't deal, you can say, I don't want any M&M's. Fine. That's another kind of deal. But what are you doing in the store? (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Anyway, um, so we push on to another election, and am I near my time? You are. I am near my time to uh, accept uh, the questions that you've brought forth uh, after being clearly looked at by your Reverend Anderson. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Chris Matthews. I knew this would be fun. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about us online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. We welcome your comments and participation through our social media sites. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author and journalist Chris Matthews. This is the last forum in our fall series. Information on the spring 2012 season will be available online in January at WestminsterForum.org. And now, Chris Matthews, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You almost went there at the beginning of your remarks. I want you to go go there now. Some comparisons between President Obama and President Kennedy. There was a lot of talk about that early on, even before he was elected. What are your reflections now this far into his presidency?
1: The um, pattern of uh, President Obama has been to uh, develop a distinguished oratory first in his political career. His speaking ability is what grabbed us all, certainly grabbed me, thrilled me, in fact, back in 2004. I said after hearing him at the Democratic Convention in 2004 up in Boston, that's our first African-American president. I said it right there on the air. It wasn't brilliant, but it was true. But the trouble is that, uh, the trouble he's found, I think, is that his political skills are not numerous. He has the ability to speak, which he uses a lot, and effectively to some extent. But there's other tools you need in your kit. The ability to get in a back room with people like Eric Cantor, I wouldn't do it for enjoyment, but uh, I, and to try to convince him that he better go it your way. Uh, intimidation, uh, backroom uh, strength, ability to uh, carry it and stick to the other politicians is the key to, grow, is the key to uh, successful leadership of other politicians. And to be a leader, you must lead other politicians. I don't think he's shown that ability uh, enough for us to be impressed. I'm not saying he doesn't have it. But the other is to ask us to do something. I was very discouraged in looking back on it. I was there on the inaugural uh, mall, the mall, the Washington Mall, when he was inaugurated. I'd never seen so many excited people. A lot of African-Americans that usually don't come to that part of Washington. They live in the neighborhoods and don't really consider themselves at home down there, historically. Hard to believe, isn't it? But they all showed up, excited faces, just cheerful faces. And he sort of dismissed the crowd afterwards. I think he should have kept us called to duty. I think he should have found ways to ask us uh, not what our country can do for us, but we can do what we can do for our country. Again, where I started, the call of duty must be made frequently and regularly by our president. He's the one we look to as the most personal leader we have, and he must talk to us about what we can do for our country. And I think there's a missing call to duty there that I still feel, and I, and I go back to Kennedy on that. I think Kennedy understood a leader is someone who leads, not someone who simply performs.
0: If Kennedy were alive and in the White House today, how do you think he would approach the kind of political gridlock that we have in our system, our national system today?
1: Well, I think he would have had a difficult time as well as anybody does. I think that uh, he faced the Southern Democrats. Remember, his challenge was a party that had a lot of conservatives in it. Well, I have in the the book, I talk about how he would get Mayor Daley of Chicago to put some muscle behind a liberal on the the, uh, delegation from Chicago. He did the same thing using the Cardinal, actually, in Philadelphia to try to get uh, the local uh, congressman to move his way on civil rights. These people were trying to be holier than now on civil rights, too liberal, and they weren't willing to cut a deal. Well, he managed to get the bill on civil rights, the great, the civil rights bill out of committee, but he still faced the, uh, the terrible people, the Dixiecrats on the Rules Committee. His, his Tea Party people were the Dixiecrats. And they're tough because they're very supported at home. And it's very hard to beat somebody. Or to, they become headless nails politically. You can't get them out. So, uh, <laughs> you know,
0: it's true. What should our current leaders be asking of us in America today?
1: Well, I'll go back to, if we're going to fight a war, let's get, let's get to it. And the most important, Churchill, I mean, he's a hero for so many of us, said there's two kinds of success, initial and ultimate. I think when we decide on war, we better decide on the ultimate goal and the consequences. If, for example, we support Israel in attacking Iran, that might be necessary. I'm not saying it's not at some point, but just make sure you have a clear notation and calculation as best you can of the consequences. What will come next? is the most important question you should always ask. Not what do you start with what comes next. How many people are really gonna get killed on our side in Iraq? Nobody calculated this many thousands. Nobody admitted it, ever. And all that, get back to the, go Google the newspapers from 2001 and 2002 and see where they ever said this was gonna be a bloody war over there. Or it would go on for all these years, 10 years. Where did it say that? No, they made it sound easy, so we'd do it. They also made it sound essential, so would do it, and neither were true. It was neither essential nor was it short and painless. We were dishonestly sold on that war. Someday people will pay for that in history. We're someday gonna get there. I amaze me that people like John Bolton and Wolfowitz and W and those people and Cheney, and that's how I pronounce his name, <laughs> still wander about the way they do.
0: Okay. You mentioned a possible war on Iran. Uh, there seems to be an increasing drumbeat for such a war, especially from the Republican presidential candidates, except for Ron Paul. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is behind that? What's motivating the Republican presidential Politics, candidates on that?
1: Politics pandering. They want votes from the evangelical Christians. I think that's really what it's about. The people who look upon the Holy Land, the way... Oh, I better be careful here. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I'm sorry. They're, they they don't go there. They don't look at it. They don't realize how tricky the land situation is over there. I've been there a number of times. It's such a small part of the world, the Holy Land. And these people live in intricate interconnectedness. You've got the the Christian churches. When you go there, you see how they divide up the time in the Church the Holy Sepulchre among the various... Christian denominations. It's so tricky. You've got the old city broken up in the four quarters. All these time-tested ways. You go to the church nativity and there's time. They have little fist fights occasionally about who gets the altar at different times. It's how history has accommodated our differences. It's so fragile. And then people just talk with these blunderbuss comments. Make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Well, that's of only interest to the people really furious if you do it. They're the ones that are going to hear you do it. Israel can survive quite well with, its, with our embassy in, in Tel Aviv. It's a cab ride. You know, it's not the end of the world. But to the Arabs, it's a signal that we've given up on them, we've taken total side with the Israelis, and we don't really believe in any two-state solution or anything else. So I mean, when they throw these things out like the, the candidates do today, or we're going to put everything on the table. I love phrases like, everything's on the table, which means nuclear weapons or whatever. We're going after them. We're going to go after their nuclear weapons. Or, I want to listen to the generals on the ground. These comments are infantile. They are infantile. And I think that's the way they talk. Kennedy, uh, Kennedy made the same mistake before he ran. He was in Milwaukee, of course. Milwaukee's very German-American. So he was promising, if they go for Berlin, we're going to nuclear war. Well, that's fun until you're president. And then that kind of brinkmanship, always say, wait a minute, did I say that? I can't go to nuclear war over access rights to a, uh, you know to a couple parts of the, uh, Berlin. The world would never forgive me if I blew up the world over that. So you got to be grown-ups. We look for grown-ups. And then if you look at the temperament of some of these fellows, I wonder, I mean, I just don't know if they really care enough to think these things through. And I mean think them through, not the first impulse, not what sounds good in the applause line. But what would really be good for mankind down the road, because you're gonna leave office in four to eight years, no matter what, you will be gone, and we'll still be here. So think about us when you're gone. I wish they would think about us when we're gone, and I don't, I don't say
0: it. Uh, you mentioned two of Minnesota's recent contributions to uh, huh. na- <laughs> national politics, Michelle Bachman and Keith Ellison. What about other politicians we've contributed to national dialogue? Gene McCarthy, Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale. Uh, some of the concepts that Kennedy embraced came from Minnesota politicians. Yeah, well, Would you, you forgot care Walter to comment Heller. on them?
1: Walter, Walter Heller. You're Heller. Great economist. Could when you comment on, on the influence like of Minnesota? I almost came to grad school out here and, and, and so I realized you had a bridge that had to be heated. <laughs> I'm not going where they have to heat the bridge. <laughs> I went to Chapel o- Hill instead. I got more money there anyway in grad school. Get Look,
0: over it, Chris. I, I
1: know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, go up to Regina if you don't like it here. Yeah, okay. Um, Howard was my hero as an economist, uh, Walter Howard from the University of Minnesota as a kid. I mean, I, so long ago now, but I just thought he was the greatest. And uh, I did want to come here because of him. And uh, and Humphrey, Humphrey was always a, a, a mixed bag in terms of his record because he was such a great gutsy guy on civil rights. I mean, here's a guy in 1948. He said, let's walk out of the darkness of uh, states' rights into the bright sunshine of human rights. And at the Philadelphia Convention, of course, that's when the Dixiecrats, Strom and the boys, Sperm Thurman, we called him when he got older, <laughs> uh, all went, he had kids at the age of 80-something, uh, went racing out of the building to form their Dixiecrat hopeless uh, effort. And Harry Truman still won that election. I have to tell you that after the Kennedy killing in 1963, I was in, in sort of a purgatorial state emotionally until Gene McCarthy came along. And in the fall of 1967, I woke up again. I said, this guy's brought us back. I will never forget that he was the only guy looking out for us, us kids. They're about to be drafted. Uh, and, uh, you know, Howard Lowenstein uh, may have started it. And, but the guys, a lot of those guys were still with Johnson. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't stand up, and he did. And, and Gene McCarthy, I wish he had followed through. He was a bit of a poet, unfortunately. But boy, he was a, a commanding figure for us of our generation. He's on my list, Gene McCarthy. And Mondale, you know, he's sort of a moderate liberal, sort of an easygoing person. Sort of a, he used to say, I, I do come across as a bit too official, too officious uh, a liberal. But you know what, I look at him and his wife, and I say, what a happy people they are. What a good couple. You know, a real role model, you know? You no, know, you know, you know, you've, done, you've done great stuff out here. You've made a few mistakes like Wendy Anderson along the way. And you know, don't appoint yourself senator. It doesn't work. People like elections, just, even, especially in Minnesota, where uh, T- Teddy White used to say, every vote counts out here. He said, there's an actual vote out here by one vote. That's what happened. You don't know how miraculous that is in some places. I mean, it actually is that way. I mean, people, their intentions were honored by the numbers. You know what I mean? Like in Florida. Right. The old joke about Florida, there's only three kinds of people in Florida Republicans and Democrats. You know, it's just one of those jokes <laughs> the, the counting problem. Good old Ralph Nader, eh? Boy, look what he did for the country 92,000 votes taken away from the Democratic column for ego.
0: Moving on to a student question.
1: By the way, is this the bell curve you have to write student? You know, like, you don't need the bell curve, do you, up there? These are a little, not right, no.
0: How did your experience in the Peace Corps affect your worldview and that of your political, uh, your political leanings?
1: How many uh, Peace Corps people here? One, two, three, four, five, thank you. But, um, Everybody in the Peace Corps knows something that people here don't know. They know what it's like to be out there all alone uh, at dinner time, around 6 or 7, when the sun starts to go down. And you're all alone, and you're way out somewhere. And all you have is your shortwave radio. And you turn it on to listen to the BBC or the Voice of America, and that's your only companion. You know true aloneness out there. And in that time, you begin to develop who you are. And uh, as one of the Peace Corps doctors said, sometimes people don't like who they discover out there. (laughs) They find themselves way out there. And then you make friends in that loneliness. You're forced to make friends from a totally different background than you. And you have to get over language issues and cultural and money, because even if you make 50 bucks, I made 72 bucks a month, that's a lot more than most people make. And you get to know people, and if if you're really lucky in a Peace Corps, at some point you get an experience like I did, I look around a room, of 17 business guys, all black, I'm white, I'm American, they're at Swazi, speaking Zulu, and I knew every single one of them personally. And they knew me. So I got to ride a motorcycle around Swaziland. I got to go to hitchhike up and down Africa alone, I had a mamba snake try to jump in the window of my car when we are going 40 miles an hour, right there and they kill you in 15 minutes. And they don't go like this, they go like this. They gallop, they're very fast, they chase horses. The Swazis always say, if they're chasing you, give up. (laughs) Anyway, the Mamba, look it up. The first thing I looked up when I got in the Peace Corps was, does Swaziland have a beach? I kept thinking, what would Jack Kennedy do? He'd ask if it had a beach and have some fun. So we had a great time, great people. Swazis could have been nicer. My experience the Peace Corps was fantastic. Not everybody's might be, but every single time, I, we had a big celebration just recently, 50th anniversary. Every single person I meet from the Peace Corps says, it changed my life, and they always mean it for the better. It gets you out of your rut. It makes you look at other religions positively. You get to see other cultures, other way look at the look. Not everybody was in the Cold War, for example. They, all, they weren't all part of it. Uh, you get to see how other people look at things. Uh, And uh, you get to enjoy the world better. I think it's better than being a tourist. There's nothing like being somewhere and becoming part of it, you know? That's what I think.
0: Another student asks about JFK and the space program, how important it was to his presidency and what he would think perhaps of today's space program in America.
1: Well, he saw it as a way to show the world, the third world I was just talking about, from another way, not just sending volunteers out to help the third world prove that we're not just a bunch of tourists or people with machine guns, that, that, that we could win with our technology, our command and control, our electronics, that the, the America was a better system. And it's, it's turned out to be certainly true. Our system with all its flaws, our capitalist system, mixed capitalism, is a better system than the Soviets put together with systems analysis and all that stuff. They weren't able to put it together. And we had a better system. They had rocket thrust eventually. I mean, Jackie said when she was interviewed a week after her husband was dead, besides the eternal flame, the other thing I wanted to give Jack was, I want his initials written up in a secret part of the next Saturn rocket to go off because that's the one that's going to pass the Soviet Union, and that's the one he was looking forward to, that we could put a man on the moon. He wanted to demonstrate to the world that our system of freedom was better than theirs of command society, and the space program was the way to do it. It was another way to teach the world. I mean, it was all part of his thing, which was nuclear arms control, test ban treaty, Peace Corps, special forces even, anything to stop the world from escalating to a nuclear war. And that's what it all added up to from what I can figure. He had a sense, even civil rights, how could we sell the world of democracy if we didn't practice it here? How could we sell the world that we're a better country if we denied the fight of a black guy to walk into a restaurant? Uh, Obviously, we couldn't, obviously. But it wasn't so clear to the people he had a fight with.
0: Another student asked, what are the implications of considering a president's character when judging his or her politics?
1: I think you judge his character. And I think you, uh, I don't know how everything adds up. You've got to mix your own uh, brew, I suppose, when you vote and where you put in the personal stuff. Uh, you look at it, you judge it, you consider the time factor, you look for growth. If you're Christian, I suppose you look for, uh, for conversion, you look for... Um, you know, salvation of some kind, you look for the person to improve themselves in some way. Uh, we all fail. I think we have to be careful about it, but I think, uh, I think uh, it, you should look at it all and make your own judgment. Uh, some people are more religious, more churchy, if you will, than others. They'll make it differently than other people, but it all adds up to a pretty good judgment. I think we can spot, generally, we've made pretty good decisions over 200 some years about our presence. We've picked some real good ones, really good ones. And even though I tend to lean left from the center around 40-yard line, uh, I do, I'm about 40-yard line, right around there. Uh, I do think that uh, Reagan did some really good things, and I think that he did some wrong things. But it wasn't a bad decision to elect him. I I disagree with liberals who said that was a mistake. I think saying that was an historic mistake is wrong. I think picking Eisenhower in 52, rather than even Stevenson, who was so eloquent, made sense because Ike had the fortitude and the guts to say no to going into Indochina, And Stevenson might have been pushed into it to prove he was tough. He kept this out of the Middle East and the Suez campaign. He kept this out of China right to the end. He had the guts to say no because he had won the war in Europe. He had received the Nazi surrender. And when you have a bragging point like that, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. And I think sometimes we make the right decision if we voted against it. I made one profound decision in my life, electorally. I voted for W the first time. I thought I thought he was serious about being humble in foreign policy. I thought he had a hunch, and I thought Al Gore was a terrible hawk in those days. And then, of course, after he lost, Al Gore grew the beard, went into a cave, and became a liberal. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I never believed the night conversion much, but uh, I make I make mistakes. I'm sure. I have a brother, by the way, Charlie, who's always right. So I can call him two weeks before and he'll tell me. And if I, I'm gonna go on national television with this. Well, Charlie says, he's a tra- he sells high medical uh, MRIs and very sophisticated medical equipment. And, he ha- and the market's very, he's very sensitive to the market, I guess. I don't know. But he just seems to be a practical guy. And uh, he said he only made one mistake, meaning he voted for Dukakis. So he leans slightly left. <laughs> so he might be, a, if Obama, you know, if he loses it by a little bit, you can't go by Charlie.
0: Uh, in the world of presidential politics, do you think that uh, Mitt Romney's Mormonism parallels Jack Kennedy's Catholicism in the election in the early '60s?
1: Yeah, and once yeah, I, think I do, I think it's the same thing. And I think once we start examining each other's religions, uh, you know, we start asking people to defend elements of our religions. All religions have something that's hard to explain, and uh, they all do. All religions—I can think of everyone. I can I can nail the Presbyterians. I can nail the Catholics. <laughs> I got one for everybody here. Uh, you know, we, I grew up in a family where my grandmother was Presbyterian uh, from Northern Ireland. She was, a, she was the real Mrs. Doubtfire. Okay? <laughs> she was about 5'10". She had an incredible brogue from Northern Ireland. She honored the Orange Day. My grandfather was English, but he was wooed over to her point of view. They both went to the parades, wherever they were. Uh, she was very strong on that issue. Uh, and the other side of the family was Roman Catholic. and We got along great. So, um, I think the wedding was rather small, but, uh, but I think, um, but the kids, we were completely accepted by my, my, uh, my, I write in a book about my Irish grandpa, uh, Charlie Shields, who was a Democratic committeeman. Who, I love that guy. I love that guy. And Grandma was a strong, great person. And uh, no, they, we used to do this thing where grandpa was a teetotaler. He was the Catholic guy. He didn't believe it because his whole family had, the old problem we're all familiar with. and, he, and he, It isn't funny, by the way. It's terrible. But uh, he, uh, he had that. So you couldn't drink around grandpa. And grandma would always have her highball. So we used to always say when we, they came up for Thanksgiving together, they'd be sitting across the room almost like at the, at the UN Security Council, you know, <laughs> across each other, watching each other. I would come in, here's your, sum here's your, it uh, up, grandma. You know, and I, I don't know if he knew what was going on. I know I didn't drink at the, my brother's wedding when I was best man because I didn't want to even touch the champagne with grandpa up there, so. Our religious issues were right in the family, so I've always been for peace in Northern Ireland. It means, because I would be the odd result of all that up there, and I, uh, I really do believe they gotta stop fighting someday, but it's that's another part of the world that doesn't seem to want to get over it. It's, it's like the Hillary people and the Obama people. They're still, they're still, still out there. Still looking at each other, you know.
0: In the rough-and-tumble world of investigative journalism, cynicism, and hardball, would Jack Kennedy have survived that, given his character flaws?
1: Well, you call them character flaws, the writer does, and I think it's a fair question. I think he would have had to... uh... First of all, this is something that all these politicians complain about. Oh, they're getting into our private life. They're looking, no, they don't. You never read an investigative piece about somebody's private life. Inevitably, somebody calls a press conference or they sue somebody or it's a legitimate workplace issue like harassment. You never hear of a guy in this woman, Ginger White. I love these names, you know, Jennifer Flowers, Ginger White, (laughs) Donna Rice. They always have vegetative names. I don't know, (laughs) I, 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 I know. I, I don't understand. What are these, these names? <laughs> up north, we don't have those names. Uh, anyway, uh, it is weird. Uh, I don't think we do investigate. Monica, maybe she blabbed to her friend, uh, Linda Tripp, and that got out, and they, a lot of it is just thrown into our faces. And uh, I don't hear any big investigative awards, being, Pulitzer Prizes being given for digging up somebody's private life, unless you're outrageous about it. And uh, I do think that, um, Politicians complain too much today. They love these jobs. They love being elected to Congress. They never want to quit. They stay there till they drop. They love it. It's a big message. They talk, oh, the burdens of public office. They love it. Where else do you get to go with a bunch of other guys, all hang out together? It's like a club. You go out, you all vote together, you all have lunch together, you hang out. Oh, we got to work late at night. Oh, that's rough, isn't it? Do they hang around in the dining room, drinking wine, having a good time? You know, it's not that rough. It's a good life. You get to have people pay attention to you. You get to do what you're interested in. You pick up the newspaper with interest. You don't have a dull, grinding job like most people. It's a career. It's not a job. It's great. The political life is exciting and wonderful, and you can do really good things. And I don't think it's a, t- oh, they're watching me. Yeah, we're, watching, we're supposed to watch it. And uh, so I think it's fair, it's fair what we do. I don't think the press is out there digging into people's sex lives. it's uh, I don't know. I, I don't even like covering that stuff. But, you know, I have to say Herman Cain put on a hell of a show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did it. <laughs>
0: 30 seconds. You were, you were inspired to be hopeful by Jack Kennedy as a young boy. Are you hopeful today for America? I'm
1: very seconds. hopeful that we can uh, we can see through this uh, upcoming election and I don't wanna, I don't campaign for anybody. I'll probably vote for Obama. In fact, I, I will unless something weird happens. But I think everybody look at this thing and vote. I hope the young people vote this time. That's one thing I hope. I hope that, uh, I hope. Uh, I hope sometime in the four national debate, they take their daggers away and throw them away somewhere. else and start talking about the future. Let me just tell you this. It's not about the past. That's in dispute, how we got here. It will remain in dispute. It's not about the present, which is going to hurt the president. The people don't like the way things are right now. If he wins, it'll be about the future. It's about the future. If it's a complaining session, he will lose. So he must shift attention, not from what Newt said 30 years ago or 20 years ago, nobody cares. He has to focus on what kind of a president he will be compared to the other guy and what the stakes are in terms of policy and performance. He has to focus it on the future or he will lose. This election is a very angry. Is coming at a very angry time in American history. And I look at the polls, it doesn't matter who the Republican is, eventually they will get that opposition number. They will get the number against him of anger. Newt is now one point ahead of the president in Ohio. That tells you everything. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Chris Matthews.